Today I'm going to start a, a personal series, I guess you could say, through the benedictions of the New Testament. So every time I have opportunity to preach, I'm going to be preaching through the, the benedictions that we find in the letters of the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> I've been wanting to do this for a long time and um, was a little bit worried when I realized last week that it was Father's Day today. And I thought, oh no, now I have to think of something else to preach on because I was going to preach on first Romans 15. And as I looked at Romans 15 and the benediction and the context of this benediction, I realized this is actually very helpful for us as fathers on Father's Day. And so this is the one day in our cultural kind of calendar in our country when everyone at least is thinking the word father. Uh, if not saying it, at least they're thinking it. And so I want to make some special uh, application to us as fathers. So read with me Romans chapter 15, 1 to 6. <clears throat> now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So, what is a benediction anyway? We, we Christians have these funny words for things, and we kind of expect everybody to know what they mean. You know, benediction, doxology, liturgy, sacrament. And if you've been around um, long enough in the church, you, you, you kind of know what those things are, but do you know what they mean? So, for example, we know that at the end of the service, the pastor stands somewhere and says, now receive this benediction. So we know that's, there's, and there's words, kind of special words that are read from Scripture, the benediction. Uh, we know that right after the offering, we stand and sing the doxology and the children go off to children's church. You know, that's what it is. The doxology is when the children go to children's church. And we hear the words liturgy and sacrament and we, we have some idea of what those are. But again, what do they mean? And I, I want to define two of those words for you this morning, benediction and doxology, because in some ways they're similar and we don't want to confuse them, and I'm going to be preaching on benediction. So what is a benediction? Benediction comes from the Latin word that means to speak well of. Good speech, a good word, a word of blessing. Doxology, on the other hand, comes from a Greek word that means glory word. It's a glorious saying about God, a glory word. So the difference between a benediction and a doxology is that a benediction is spoken to men, 
A doxology is spoken to God. So a doxology is something like this. If you, if you have your Bible open in Romans 15, go down to Romans 16, 25. This is actually one of the longer ones uh, in the New Testament, one of the longer doxologies. But notice how it's different from a benediction. The doxology of Romans is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now, to him, this is talking to God, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. That's kind of a long, it's kind of a mouthful. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever, amen. That's a doxology. It's the glory word of the book of Romans. To God be the glory. But a benediction is different. A benediction, a blessing word, is directed to men. And the book of Romans actually has four of them. Four benedictions. This one in 15, uh, Romans 15, 5 and 6. You look down the page, you see one in 15, 13. Look a little bit further, you see one in 1533, and then you see another one in, 15, or in 1620. There's actually four benedictions in the book of Romans, and I'll probably preach through all of them at some point. Now, one more note about benedictions in general before we jump into this one in, in particular. Uh, benedictions have a particular form. They sound almost like a prayer, but they aren't quite prayers because they're not really directed or addressed to God like a prayer would be. They aren't prayers, but they sound almost like holy wishes. Now may is how they often start. Now may God, now may God bless you. I, I really wish and hope that God will bless you. All right, they almost sound like holy wishes, not quite prayers, but wishes. But that doesn't quite get at it because benedictions are more than holy wishes. They're also exhortations. Look at Romans 15, 5, and 6, for example, the one we're looking at today, and you'll see the weight of this benediction. The Apostle Paul actually expects something from the Romans as he pronounces this benediction on them, this blessing. So just look at it real quickly, 15, 5, and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. <coughs> you know? May he grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you hear the, the exhortation? The apostle wants us to feel the weight of expectation and exhortation in these words. So it's almost like saying, you know, if you're a father or a mother and saying to your children, I wish you would all just get along. <laughs> I, I wish you'd stop fighting. I wish you'd share your toys with one another. So it's not quite a command. You know, it's not, get along. It's, I wish you'd get along. And everyone knows, it's not a command, but everyone knows exactly what mom or dad wants at that point, right? Right? So it's an exhortation, but it's not quite a command. And so that's exactly what these benedictions are often like. 
Benedictions are exhortational holy wishes. I made that up. <laughs> exhortational holy wishes. So let's look at this benediction, Romans 15, 5 to 6. But let's read the context again because we're going to actually set this in the context. So Romans 15, 1 to 6. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now some benedictions in the New Testament just kind of hang there. They're, they're almost just like tacked on at the end. Uh, they don't appear to have any real connection to the context per se. But this benediction is intimately tied to the context of what Paul is saying right around it. So here's the context of this benediction. In verses 1 and 2, the apostle sums up an argument that he's been making from back in chapter 14. The, the argument back in chapter 14, we're not going to go back there and get into it, uh, is that we need to live in peace with one another. We need to bear with one another's weaknesses, those who are strong in conscience and food and all those things. We need to bear with one another and help each other. And so he's kind of summing up that argument. He says in verses 1 and 2, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his own good to his edification. I'm going to come back to that at the end about what he's saying there. That's verses 1 and 2. Then in verse 3, Paul gives a, a scriptural reason for that argument or for that command. Verse 3, we are to please our neighbor for our neighbor's good for, verse 3, because even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, where? As it is written, where? What's he quoting? Anyone know? We actually just read it a few weeks ago. Psalm 69. As it is written in the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 69 to be exact, quote, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay, so verses one and two. Uh, we must not please ourselves, bear the strong, should bear the weaknesses of those without strength, for even Christ didn't please himself, just as it's written in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, he quotes it. That's why we are to please our neighbor for his own good, because even Jesus himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus himself did not please himself. The one who had the right to please himself didn't please himself, but instead he bore the reproach of those who hate God. And then in verse 4, the Apostle Paul explains why he just quoted from the Old Testament. So, Paul, why are you quoting from the Old Testament talking about Jesus? I thought the Old Testament was about, you know, the Jews and the nation of Israel and, you know, sheep and goats and blood and Amalekites and all that kind of stuff. Why are you quoting about 
Jesus from the Old Testament. He tells us, this is really a wonderful statement of the, of the usefulness and the ongoing relevance of the Old Testament for us. Verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times, no matter what it was. So in other words, whatever was written in the Old Testament, scriptures, whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and in the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now this is, just think of how wonderful this is, a statement about the usefulness of the Old Testament for us. The Old Testament was written for, he says, the Old Testament was written for us. It was written for our instruction. It was written to give us perseverance and encouragement and hope. And so there are many... um, The Old Testament is lost to the American modern church for many reasons. And because the Old Testament is lost to us, perseverance, encouragement, and hope are lost to us because that's why the Old Testament was written. That's what Paul just said. So if, you, if, you, if you're a New Testament you know, Christian, you don't, you don't mess with the Old Testament, you have the New Testament and that's enough for you, then you are saying right there, I, I don't need perseverance, encouragement, and hope. Because the Apostle Paul just said the Old Testament scriptures were written for your perseverance, and encouragement, and hope. And Paul says the same kind of thing in, in other places. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 6 through 12. Uh, Jody's been teaching through 1 Samuel just for a couple of weeks, and one of the things that he said at the beginning, if you remember, if you're in that class, there's a whole world of people today saying that, the old, that we should not look to the Old Testament for moral examples. We should only look for Christ. Some people say we should not look to the Old Testament for Christ, we should only look for moral examples. Some say we shouldn't look for moral example, we should only look for Jesus. Both, we, we, we actually look for both. Because look at what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. He's talking about the, the Israelites in the wilderness and what has happened to them. And he says to these Gentile Christians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, now these things happened to them in the Old Testament, as examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, as an example, and they were written for our instruction. The Old Testament was written for our instruction. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Take heed to what? Take heed to what? So these examples written for our instruction in the Old Testament, you see, God gave you the Old Testament. The Old Testament is yours. 
The Old Testament is Christian scripture. It's not Jewish scripture, it's Christian scripture, it's yours. And if your doctrinal system robs you of the Old Testament, or if it robs you of the moral practical examples of the Old Testament, then you have a bad doctrinal system that's unbiblical. Because whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that's the context of this, of this benediction. This word of blessing, this exhortational holy wish. Now look at the benediction itself, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what a wonderful word of blessing. Oh, that this would be true of us. Look at what he hopes for and exhorts us to. He begins by calling God something. He says, God is the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Now that is wonderful. Think of this, the God, God gives perseverance and encouragement. That's wonderful, but it's actually more wonderful than that. Because what it actually says is not the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. That's how it's translated here, but it's not quite right. What Paul actually calls God is the God of perseverance and encouragement. That's what it says. The God of perseverance and encouragement, and that is better. It's the same thing that he says in the second benediction in Romans. If you have Romans 15 open, look at verse 13. The exact same construction, ask Josh, he'll tell you, all right? And it says, now may the God of hope, not the God who gives hope, but the God of hope. Our God just doesn't, doesn't just give hope, he's the God of hope. And our God doesn't just give perseverance and encouragement, that would be great, and it's certainly true, but we can give things, you know, impersonally, passively. A, a rich man can give all kinds of money away and not have any idea who he's going to or any relationship or connection. He can, so God can give things, but that's, it's better than that. He is the God who doesn't just give out perseverance and encouragement. He is the God of perseverance and encouragement. He invented perseverance and encouragement. He made it. It's his. He rules over perseverance and encouragement. He is the author and foundation of the perseverance and encouragement of his saints. So, of course, he gives it. But it's, it's bigger than that. He invented it. He rules over it. He loves it. Perseverance and encouragement. But notice this well. God does not give us perseverance and encouragement um, by osmosis. Or God doesn't zap us from heaven with perseverance and encouragement. He, he, you're not just walking around 
uh, neglecting all the things that God has given you to do or the means that he's given you and you're just zapped with perseverance and encouragement. The God of perseverance and encouragement gives us perseverance and encouragement, how? Through the scriptures. That's what he just said in verse 4, remember? Verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement, so how does God give you perseverance and encouragement? He gives us perseverance and encouragement through the scriptures. Don't expect to, to persevere, don't expect to be encouraged just because God somehow is going to magically give it to you. He will give it to you, but only when you seek it in the scriptures. And again, in particular, here, the Old Testament scriptures. If you're weak, if you're discouraged, if you're hopeless, you need to read the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament. So God gives perseverance and encouragement. He's the God of perseverance and encouragement. He gives it to us through the scriptures. Now, there's more to this word of blessing than that. Verse 5, again. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind. So here's the exhortation. Here's what he wants of us. Grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the exhortation. This is the point of the blessing. This is not just some fuzzy kind of generic, warm, you know, I just hope everything goes well with you. There's a point to this blessing. The Apostle Paul wants us to change. He wants us to live in unity with one another. He wants us to have the same mind with one another, to be of one accord with one another, to have unity. Because unity is a blessing. Unity is a great blessing. Think of what Psalm 133 says. Remember this psalm about, this is three verses long. It's all about blessing, the blessing of unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head, the, the, the anointing oil on the head of the priest, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. The blessing of unity is like the blessing of life, eternal life. It's a rich blessing. It's something that we take very lightly. It's something that we despise even and are willing to, to cast away, willing to destroy. But it's a blessing. Why does he wish this blessing on us, this unity on us? He wishes this blessing on us. Now, now may God give this blessing of unity to us. Why? So that with one accord, we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity in the church, unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ is a sweet blessing because it lets us sing and speak to the glory of our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that is a blessing. What more could we want than to be able to live together as God's people, brothers and sisters in Christ, unified, fellowshipping together, not divisive, not biting and devouring one another, not against each other, but living together in unity, not despising one another's weaknesses, judging one another, living together in unity, praising God together in unity so that he would be glorified. When you're, when you're praising God together in disunity, he's not glorified because he's your father and your brothers and sisters. And for the brothers and sisters to be fighting uh, doesn't, doesn't speak well of the Father, does it? So the glory of God is at stake here and the blessing of being able to live in unity so that we can glorify the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is at stake. This is such a sweet thing to hope for. This is a sweet thing to wish for in the confidence of God's character as the God of perseverance and encouragement and hope. We need to be unified. We need one accord and one voice. And every church is always on the brink of of falling into disunity and discord. Always just on the razor's edge of it. It could be anything. It's something that does not come naturally. It's something that must be guarded and protected and that God ultimately must give us. What do we need in order to be unified and in one accord, in sweet fellowship with one another? We need perseverance and encouragement (laughs) because it's hard work. It's discouraging People say things, people do things, people come and go, and, and it's discouraging. Hard to keep on fighting for perseverance or for, for unity. And so we need the gift of perseverance and encouragement and hope. Hope that we can live together in unity. Hope that we can obey God, hope for sanctification, hope for dwelling together as brothers and sisters, dwelling together as under our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, under his God and Father, our God and Father. This is hard work, and we need perseverance and encouragement and hope for it. Now, what does all this have to do with fathers? Father's Day? Is it a stretch to start thinking now about fathers in this passage? Uh, I don't think it's a stretch at all. So let me list some things for you. First of all, the first two verses of Romans 15 are a perfect description of a good father. Look at what it says. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. Your children, right? Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. Each of us is to please his child, his children, for his own good 
to his edification. Think about how that applies to fathers and children. Now, don't worry. This is not saying that we should do whatever our neighbors or our children want us to do. Right? This is not saying just whatever they want, give them whatever they want, just please them, whatever makes them happy, just whatever, you know, just do whatever makes them happy. No, because that's what a bad father does. This is not saying we should be man pleasers. Too many fathers ruin their children because they desperately want their children to like them. They want to be their children's buddies. And so they never say no to them. All that matters to them is that their children are happy. That is not what Paul is saying here. We know that Paul is not telling us to become man pleasers because several places Paul says, the last thing in the world I want to do is be a man pleaser. Right? So for example, Galatians 1.10 Paul says in Galatians 1.10, speaking of himself, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's the last thing I have in mind, he says, is to try to please you. Now, I am trying to help you. I'm not trying to please you. Same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 and 6, talking about his own ministry again. He says, for we never came with flattering speech, All right? We didn't come telling you how good you are, how everything was, you know, you're so nice, so sweet, how great you were. We didn't come with flattering speech to please you with our speech. As you know, he says, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men. Oh, look at how wonderful they are. Look at how we really like Paul because he says nice things about us. No. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. So we know that when Paul says here, um, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his own good to his edification. He can't mean, or if you apply this to children, he can't mean just do whatever your children want. What he's saying is that Christians must not please ourselves. Fathers must not please themselves. Your life can't be about satisfying all the little appetites and desires of your own heart. It's good for us to deny ourselves. And Christians must please our brothers, not pleasing them in the sense of being servants to their lusts, telling them what they want to hear, giving them what they want, whether it's good for them or not, but giving them the real help that we need. We should do all, of, all that we can to help each other and to edify one another. That's what he says. Now think of it. Isn't that a great description of, what a, of how a father should be towards his children? Fathers, you who are strong, bear the weaknesses of your children. This doesn't say bear with the weaknesses of your children. That would just mean put up with them. Right? That's not what it says. It says bear them, which means carry them. 
carry the weaknesses of your children. Carry the weaknesses of those who are weak. Carry the weaknesses of your children. Don't make fun of them. Some of you grew up with a father who all he could do is make fun of you. Point out your weaknesses. Not point, not point out your weaknesses helpfully so that he could help you, you know, carry it. But point out your weaknesses because he was a small man and the only way he could be bigger is to make you smaller. So he pointed out your weaknesses. You, you were a threat to him. Don't use your strength to be a tyrant over your children. Use your strength to bear them up and help them and edify them, build them up, strengthen them. This is the opposite of the Barney Fife syndrome that I tirelessly talk to you men about. So if you don't know what I mean by that, sorry, but it's shorthand for a lot, okay? You all remember Barney Fife from the whatever it was called. I always forget, yeah, the Andy Griffith show. He was a small man. And what, what men often do is they act like small men, wearing their authority like a small man would. The Barney Fife man uses his strength to lord it over his wife and his children. I'm the one who's in charge here. Who do you think you are? But the Christian father uses his strength to deny himself and to help the weaknesses of his family to bear them, to carry them, to help them, to strengthen, to edify, to give what's useful, not to tear down. So fathers, be a father like that, by the grace of God. Secondly, God the Father is the God, as we've seen, he's the God of perseverance and encouragement. So as a good father, a good father drips with perseverance and encouragement. He gives it freely. He is the source of the perseverance and encouragement of his children. In the two places in the New Testament that particularly address fathers as fathers, that tells us fathers how to be with our children, this is the point. It's to imitate the God of perseverance and encouragement. Think of this, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, right? Which would be the opposite of giving them perseverance and encouragement. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's being like the God of perseverance and encouragement. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't just hammer on them constantly all the time and discourage them all the time, but bring them up. Bring them up. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3.21 is the other one. Speaking directly to fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Do you see how clear that is? In other words, be the father of perseverance and encouragement with your children. Men. Don't exasperate them so that they will lose heart. Instead, give them perseverance and encouragement so that they'll have hope. Fathers, encourage your children. 
And again, some of you had bad fathers who never encouraged you. But now you have a good father who encourages you. The father, the God of perseverance and encouragement. So be like him. Third, a good father produces unity in his household. A sign of a a good father's management, that he's managing his household well, is that the children are, are getting along with each other and with their mother and with him. There's unity. He uses his authority and his influence and his blessing and his discipline and his strength and his helpfulness to produce and guard the unity of his little flock. And so many of you fathers just are clueless about the fact that your children are fighting all the time, at each other's throats all the time. And you don't care. That's, your, that's, 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 that's mama's job. I don't, you know, take care of those kids. Tell them to, tell them to shut up. And you, you don't care about the unity of your little flock. A wicked father, even more than that, a wicked father uses his strength to pit his children against one another and against their mother. Some of you actually have grown up with a father just like that, who used his position because he was a small man, an insecure man, to pit you against your brothers and sisters so that there was never a united front against him and his wickedness. Now, I'm serious. Some of you have grown up with like that. A good father wants and works for the unity of his family. So fathers, build the unity of your family. Build it around the truth and around the gospel and around the church. Build the unity of your family around something that matters, something that's eternal. Now lastly, What does all this have to do with fatherhood? It all leads to the glory of the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that at the very end? That you'd have, with one accord, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the point. Fathers, when you act like the Father... When you use your fatherhood to bless and to encourage and to strengthen and to unify, you are reflecting the goodness and the sweetness and the glory of God the Father. And there is no higher calling in all of the world than that. There is nothing more worth your sweat and your labor and your energy than that. No job, no career advancement, no raise, no ministry opportunity, no degree, no praise from men, no success, nothing is better and nothing is more glorious than this. being a father who reflects the father. So that when your children look at you, they look at you and say, oh, that's what God is like. All of your children think that. 
for better or for worse. How wonderful it is when, they, when it's for the better. <laughs> when it's actually, you know, relatively accurate. Work for that. Turn down opportunities that would hinder that. Make that your goal. Fathers, may it be so among us.